this morning, I want to let you know that I'm a professional. I've been at this for years, and I'm better than really anyone you've ever heard at this. Uh, The more time you spend with me, the more you'll realize how good I am at this. In fact, I've never met anyone that is better at this than I am. My family has been doing this for generations, and I am the culmination of that heritage. I'm not speaking about preaching, but I'm speaking about pride. I'm really a pro. You can ask my wife. I'm a dreadfully prideful man in the process of sanctification. I need this sermon more than anyone else in this room. In my experience and study, there's no sharper axe in Scripture that one can lay to the root of pride and self than Philippians 2. My aim this morning is to to pull back the dirt that has been covering this root so that the Spirit would hack away at each of us and the stubborn self that remains. I think this is a struggle for most, if not all of us. Self-importance and arrogance are are the two crowning jewels of American culture. We stew in these juices daily. We steep in the encouragement to express all of our opinions and thoughts through social media and blogs. We are trained to think that self-expression is the essence of existence. The church is no exception to this cultural norm. Popular Christian music is often about what one thinks of God rather than what God thinks of himself. Christian bookshops offer and sell all kinds of volumes about how to become a better you. Because after all, you are most important. During my study this week, I came across a book that I think encapsulates what we're really up against culturally. It's written by Rose Rosetree, and it's entitled, How to Become the Most Important Person in the Room. The description reads this way. Ever worry that your sensitivity is a curse? Get skills with the system of empath empowerment. Then you can enjoy your life as never before. This book gives you a simple 30-day plan. Read one short chapter, then spend just 10 minutes a day practicing. But those 10 short minutes will add up to something big. Wherever you go, and regardless of whom you're with, you can become the most important person in the room. People will respect you more. And you can actually help them, if you wish. For Americans, humility is and always will be a break from culture. Yet our problem with pride is not simply cultural. It is who we are as humans. Sin and rebellion against God is self-centeredness expressed. It's me saying, I think my thoughts are more important than his thoughts. The fact is this. This sermon will not make you humble. It will not make me humble. I've spent over three decades getting good at pride, and hiding it from you. But this sermon, it can break you if the Spirit is willing. It can soften you if you desire. It can redirect and correct you by God's grace. It can be the beginning of a long pursuit of personal humility. So let's beg God 
Let's beg him to do this to us by his word. Will you pray with me? Father, we know that you oppose the proud and give grace to the humble. We know that a haughty spirit goes before destruction. We know that we follow a humble king. Make us humble subjects of yours. Begin and complete an all-consuming work in us for your glory by your word through the Spirit. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. I am in a season of life where God is kindly exposing my need for growth and humility. And the Philippians found themselves in the same position. God kindly sent encouragement to them via the words of the Apostle Paul. Suffering had exposed weakness. Their unity was in danger. Paul, knowing about this danger, then warmly writes to his friends. In Paul's mind, corporate unity through personal humility is of the highest priority. Paul has in mind a specific type of unity. He calls it being of the same mind. He has mentioned the idea already in chapter 1, verse 27, where he says, with one mind striving along, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Oneness of mind is a particular challenge for groups of humans because we all have individual centers of thought that differ based on experience, gender, age, education, and desires. Think about it. Paul is saying that a a socioeconomic, culturally diverse group of people should be unified or of the same mind while being persecuted and suffering. This is next to impossible. He knows that this notion is in need of both explanation and motivation. So first this morning, we will look at what corporate unity through personal humility is, and then we will talk about what motivates it. Paul knows that his audience will not naturally or intuitively understand the type of unity that he's advocating. So he gives a a cocktail of positive and negative commands and criteria in order to express a reality that most humans have never experienced. Corporate unity through personal humility. Most of us have never experienced this because it's so countercultural and it's so counterhuman. It's an affront to all of our experience. Look with me at verse 2 where Paul says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Here Paul encourages the Philippian church about what they should be. They should function as a group of people who are unified by what they set their minds on, where they point their affections, and how their souls, though many, are one. He is talking about a unity of mind and heart and of soul, a unity that is worthy of the gospel and shows the gospel to the larger Philippian community. Paul is insisting on a oneness that can only be given by God because it is reflective of his character. Paul is pressing for a oneness of mind and activity and mission and affection and concern. 
1969, NASA was in a race to put the first man on the moon. Uh, it was midsummer, and uh, all the network crews were, were there at the launch site, kind of waiting for the buildup and kind of reporting day to day, letting everybody know how it was going. And on one of these days, things were kind of slow, and they wanted to get some, some B footage for, you know, kind of fill in films where they don't have anything really to put. They kind of put this B footage. And so uh, they started kind of walking around, interviewing people. They had a, a mic and a camera. And so they see a guy uh, coming down the hallway, and he was a janitor. And so they see the guy, he's walking up, they stop the guy, and they ask him, What's your job here? And he pauses. He kind of leans up on his, on his broom and he says, My job is to put a man on the moon. This man understood that he was part of something. His mind was set on that purpose, that goal, that mission. He had moved his affections to be one with all that was happening there at NASA. This janitor saw himself as a crucial part of NASA. His mind, desires, affections were all set on what NASA was up to. And his statement is reflective of a humble unity with NASA's purpose. So how about you? What are you setting your mind on? Better said, how about y'all? What are y'all setting y'all's minds on? What are y'all pointing and grooming your affections towards? Are you concerned for your own souls and for the souls of those in this body? Is that where you're pointing your affections and your concern? Are you setting your mind on a unity that's reflective of God's own character within this body? So what's getting in the way of this type of unity? Do you have time to be this purposeful about church life and unity? It's not hard to seem unified for two hours a week, but as our lives grow closer together, the differences in how we think and act become more apparent. As we make decisions together and confront sin together and serve one another, our self rises up. When this happens, what will you do? Will you validate self or you or will you exterminate self in verse three and four paul says do nothing from rivalry or conceit but in humility count others more significant than yourselves let each of you look not only to your own interest but also to the interest of others Paul is exposing the most basic human motivation, self. He knows that even though his audience loves and walks with Christ, they still struggle with self. It is our disposition to put ourselves at the center of our decision-making and interaction with others. Even our humility can be self-serving. One way to measure this is to ask ourselves, who is the most important person in the rooms that you occupy? Who's the most important person in your classroom? Who's the most important person in your living room? Who's the most important person in your bedroom? Who's the most important person in the boardroom? 
Who's the most important person in your cubicle? Who's the most important person on the job site? Who's the most important person in the coffee shop? Who's the most important person on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter? Or better yet, let's ask it this way. Who's the least important person in the rooms that you occupy? This passage tells us that I am the least important person in every room that I enter. I am not second. I am not third. I am least. Because I am to put the interest of others above my own. I'm to consider others more, in, more significant than myself. So that puts me at the bottom of the heap. You don't like this. You don't like that I'm saying this to you. I don't like hearing this, but that's the reality of walking with Christ. Is that we become least important and others become most important. We get shuffled to the back of the line to stay there, to live there, to be joyful there. This is the Christian life, to humble ourselves, to learn to enjoy being least. So what does it look like for you to become least and put others first? What would it look like for you to view others as more important than yourself? What would it look like for you to look also to the interests of others, not just your own? What would it look like for you to do nothing out of conceit or selfish ambition? Let's take a test. Are you more interested in speaking about yourself rather than asking others about themselves? Imagine the gospel conversations you could have if you made a practice of asking others about themselves. Just simply asking people out of concern for them. Who are you? What are you up to? What does your life look like? Rather than giving them all the details of our lives. Does your calendar look like that of someone who counts others more important? Does your calendar have you and yours at the center? Or does it have others at the center? Imagine what God would do if you and I positioned him and his people at the center of our calendar. That if we made sure our calendars had extra time, margin, so that if something came up, you actually had time to Help that person, encourage that person, speak with that person, pray with that person, serve that person. But most of our calendars are so full that if something comes up, we really don't have the time or the space. We jam our schedules full. When you look at your bank account online, does it look like one that looks also to the interest of others? Or just simply to your own interests. I was when I was a uh, youth pastor. I would I would tell my students, "Let me see your calendar." Now most of them didn't have calendars at this point, but you get the idea. Let me see your calendar and your pocketbook, and I can tell you what your priorities are. So, 
let me see your iPhone and I can tell you what your priorities are because I would see how you spend your money. I would see how you spend your time. I will see how you post, see what you talk about, what, what overflows out of your heart, what the world sees of you. And that tells us most about ourselves. So it feels as if I'm beating you. But this is what the Apostle Paul is doing to us through this letter to the Philippians as a message from God. Because God loves us so much so that he will not let pride and selfishness just remain. He wants to root it out. He wants to move back that dirt. And he wants to whack away at that stubborn self that remains. The challenge is to learn to enjoy this, to learn to, to love God having his scope on you and working on you. And, I, and many times I don't love it. But you know what? I want to be like Christ. I want to be like him in, in very specific ways. And I know for me, where I am, that humility is that thing in Christ that is most challenging to me. And so if I will walk with him and follow him and be like him, I must be humble. Now, you may have already accomplished this. You may be finished with this. Um, And if you're there, I would encourage you, take another look. Pull the dirt back a little further and see, see how deep those roots go. And call on the Holy Spirit to whack away at those roots. So would those around you consider you humble? Would your classmates or your professors, your employer, your employees, your friends, your teammates, or your family, your wife, your children, your husband, your brothers, your sisters, your parents, those people that really know you. Charles Charles Spurgeon says that who you are at home is who you are indeed. And so those people that are closest to you, that live next to you, that know how you act when you get hungry or when you get frustrated or when you are tired or when you're cold or when you're hot or when you're... um, fearful or concerned because that's where who we really are creeps out and we get a real sense of who we are. So in those moments, would the people nearest to you say that that's my dad and he humbly walks with Christ? That's what I want. So when they lay you in the dirt and they cover you up and people throw the flowers in, Well, the thing that they say about you is that lady was humble. That man was humble. Is that what will be said about you? Paul is placing humility at the center of the Christian life, yet we seldom hear sermons on it. Nor are there many Christian books concerning the topic of humility. I did a a search on christianbooks.com. I found 200... There are 2,471 books on success, Christian books on success, 2,500 of them. Look for books on humility, 400. The Christian community is more concerned with success than they are humility because those are the books that are written. That's the market. We're in that community. Humility is mentioned more in the Bible, more than speaking in tongues, just as often as baptism, more than the Lord's Supper, more than predestination, election, and free will combined. And depending on who wrote the book of Hebrews, all but two, two New Testament writers mention the word. But it's clear that they all discuss the idea. It's everywhere in the scriptures. Everywhere. 
And it is incumbent upon us to consider that for ourselves. So the question we are faced with is, will we make humility a personal pursuit? Will I press in and study God's word concerning humility and pride? Will I expose myself to people and accountability? Will I say who I am? Will I repent and ask for forgiveness? When I come into this room and I know that I've thought something about someone that I should not have thought because I have a prideful, ugly soul, will I go to them and ask them to forgive me because that will lay the root to pride? Will I do that? Will I repent and ask for forgiveness? Back in our passage, verses 2, 3, and 4 give us no uncertain description of corporate unity through personal humility. And now that we know what it is, let's take a look at some some motivation to walk in it. This will be a lifelong pursuit that needs much motivation. And so I I hope as I highlight some of these things uh, that, that these things will stick with you. And when you think, how do I walk in humility, that these things will be the motivation. In verse 1, Paul says, so if there is encouragement, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. It is if Paul is laying out a checklist of Christian experience. He highlights five areas that the Philippians would have surely experienced and could not deny. It would be like me asking you this morning, have you ever been encouraged by your relationship with Christ? Depending on your church tradition, many people would say, amen. I live in a place where when I preach, people respond. This is not one of those places. Um, And that's cool because it's part of our culture. But you're thinking in your mind, amen. Have you ever been encouraged by your relationship with Christ? Amen. Have you ever been comforted by God's love? Of course. Have you ever experienced the nearness and activity of the Holy Spirit? Yes. Have you ever received affection and sympathy in your Christian life? Of course. Amen. Exactly. You can't, you, you can't, exactly, you can't deny any of these things. If you are a Christian, you have experienced all of these things. And he knows that. And that's why he asks them the way that he does. He's asking them to reflect on all that they have received through their union and relationship with God. He is asking them to consider how lavish has he been with them. By saying, so if there is, the way he introduces this section, by saying it that way, to things that can't be denied, he is actually saying something in a very persuasive way. He's saying this, therefore, since there is. There's no argument that can be made against the request uh, that he's making of them. And he's, so he's saying, this morning I could say to you, therefore, since there is so much encouragement in Christ, therefore, since there is so much participation in the Spirit, therefore, since there is so much affection and sympathy, pursue corporate unity through humility. These are things that cannot be denied. And so therefore, we must respond to them. We must reflect on what Christ has done in us and to us. And I would say to you this morning, if you look over that checklist and you're kind of like, eh, uh, not so much, I would encourage you 
Get to know Christ. Walk with him. Spend life with him. And you will wholeheartedly say amen to each of those pieces and those parts. Because that is the Christian life. God's overflowing, boundless love towards us. My pastor says there's two ways to humble a man. You can beat him down or you can love him down. What more could God do to humble us in his love? What more could he do to humble us? So when we reflect on God's love, his comfort, encouragement, and sympathy, and affection, and his nearness, we are left with only one response, and it's humility. Theological thankfulness extinguishes pride and motivates corporate unity through personal humility. Theological thankfulness. Not just thankful about what we get, but who we get it from. Reflecting on who God is, the giver of all good gifts. So our thankfulness really is rooted in who God is. And so as we do that, as we reflect on God's character of kindness towards us, we're left with only one response, and that's humility. Because of the kindness that God has shown us. He has humbled us. He has loved us down. So we should be people who reflect on God's kindness to us privately and publicly. So, would you daily pursue thankfulness before God? Would you daily take a moment and just sit and think about, God, I'm so thankful that you are who you are and that you have chosen to interact with me and to love me the way that you do. And I'm thankful for the way that your boundless love has overflowed into my life. Would you just set time aside to do that? To privately Reflect on God's kindness and love towards you. And would you do that publicly? Would you be a person who, even at the embarrassment of others, uh, even at the discomfort of others, just talk about the great things that God is doing towards you? How he's providing for you, how he's loving you, how he's speaking to you, how he's communicating to you. Reflecting on your common Christian experience together. Is that a part of this fellowship? Do you all just spend time in relationship, talking about God's kindness towards one another, what God is doing to you. I think this passage pushes us and encourages us that that should be a common reality. How will you be reflective and thankful? Is a question that you have to answer for yourself. What does that look like for you? How will you do that? Joy is the second motivation of corporate unity through personal humility. I'm, I'm using that phrase over and over again because this is, this is Paul's target. Corporate unity through personal humility. Church unity through personal Christian humility. Where you find humility, you will find unity. Where you find disunity, you will find pride usually how that works. Joy is the second motivation of this thing that Paul is calling us to. It could be said that reflective thankfulness, what we just talked about, is the fuel of corporate unity. And then it could be said that joy is the outcome. So my question for you is, do you want to be joyful? Paul says in verse 2, to complete his joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. 
Paul is consumed by love for the church. He wants nothing more than to see it be and remain healthy. Unity is a a distinguishing mark of a healthy church. And Paul desires this health and unity so much that he can say that nothing would give him more complete joy than for the Philippians to walk in unity. This is a man in prison. And nothing would give him greater joy than to know that the Philippians walk in unity. I would say, how about getting out of jail? But no, nothing would give him greater joy than to know that the Philippian church continues and walks in unity. If church health and unity is a joy complete, is joy completing for Paul, we should conclude that it also should be our joyful priority. So it's, joy, it's Paul's priority, it's his joy. We should conclude that it is our joy also, that it is joy infusing for us also. I think that Paul um, had a pretty good understanding of God and what pleased God uh, and was pretty good at communicating that. And so if this is something that made jo- Paul joyful, uh, I should pursue that. I think that's a necessary conclusion of this passage. So joy is at stake when the church is fractured. A divided church is not a joyful church. And church unity is joyful. It's joy infusing. So of course you want joy. So one of the most important things you can do to pursue joy is to humbly pursue unity within this body. You can protect your joy by doing that. I've been around a couple of church fracturings. Um, They're ugly. They get ugly. Uh, And usually... Uh, the fuel of those divisions and fracturing our pride. So how about you? Would church unity be on your short list of joyful priorities? Is that just, just what comes to your mind when you think about joy? You're thinking, you know, Sunday afternoon, you know, what would make me joyful? Pursuing church unity. No, college basketball. You see what I'm saying? How do your other priorities push out time to pursue joyful unity? To be joyfully unified, we actually have to spend time together. So how do we make time for one another to press into joyful unity? Is your voice a unifying voice in the church? Do you have preferences that, need to, that you need to let fall? For the sake of unity? Are you harboring resentment that you need to ask forgiveness for? Are you against someone in this body? You kind of think in your mind, I'm kind of against that person. How do you how do you deal with that? How will you deal with that? Do you pray for and pursue the unity of this body? In our day, churches don't divide over doctrine. They don't divide over doctrinal differences. They divide over personal preferences. Sometimes that means a group separates and starts another church. Sometimes it means that a member goes to another church. One is a fracturing in half. The other is a fracturing in bits. Many times we don't think about this. But when someone leaves a body of believers that that they've covenanted together with, they've promised to love and walk with and care for those people, that then when they have a preference that they're looking to fulfill in another body, when they leave that body, there's fracturing that happens there. There's disunity that's happening. And many times that's not talked about. 
And so that's the way we see the church fracturing many, many times around us, is these personal preferences drive people away from the body to find how to meet that felt need. Protect yourself from this. We've seen two great motivators thus far to corporate unity through personal humility. Through personal humility. The first is the personal, undeniable experience of love and compassion and nearness and affection and sympathy of God towards us. That's the first motivator, right? Is that God has been so kind to us that he wants to motivate us by that into personal humility and that that would produce corporate unity. That's the first one. The second one we talked about is that joy is a motivating factor because joy comes out of this type of humility. And so I want to highlight a third. Look with me in verses 5 through 11. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Listen to this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the most motivating thing you will ever hear towards personal humility. We have a humble, exemplary king. Jesus was the most important person in every room he ever entered, and he made himself nothing. He actually was the most important person in the room in every room that he entered, in every synagogue, every time he went to the temple, every home, every town, everywhere he went, he was the most important person there. But he made himself nothing so that he could be your everything. Will you become nothing with King Jesus? Will you become least as an expression of thankfulness and joy in Christ? Will you become nothing with him? That's my prayer for you. And that's my prayer for me. That's where I'm left. I'm left at that place when I study God's word that I will either press into becoming the least and becoming nothing, or I will invest all my time into becoming something and becoming important. And that's our struggle. Because everything's screaming at us to say, make yourself important. Because if you don't, no one will. If you don't make you important, who else is going to do it? The gospel tells us Christ 
is the most important person in the room. And that orients us to the way that we live the rest of our lives, pointing to his greatness. Pointing to the fact that he is king and that we follow him in humility. That's what I want to pray for this church. That's what I want to leave you with. As I pray, I want to, I want to encourage you to reflect on what it is, where it is, that you will actually do something about what we've talked about. You know, my pastor says that um, there's magic erasers on the door at the back of our building. When you go through those doors, you actually forget everything that the pastor said. Um, and, and that happens a lot of the time that, you know, I've, I've sat under preaching for about 14 years, and many times that happens as, as we forget uh, what was said. I don't want you to remember what I said. I'm not, I'm not as interested in that as I am you taking this text seriously and doing something about it by God's grace and begging him to do something to you that you can't do to yourself in humility. So that's what we're going to pray. Father, we do ask that you would humble us. You would crush us under the weight of your loving kindness. We would reflect on your goodness towards us. And we would be left with no option but humility. And that that humility would safeguard and encourage and build up the unity of this local church in such a way that all of us would have complete joy in the fact that your people are like you. Unified loving, affectionate towards one another. We submit ourselves to you, King Jesus. Much like the first day that I ever followed you, I give you my life. You take it, and you make it what you want it to be. Humble me, and humble this sweet church. Give them unity as a gift, Give them personal humility as a gift and give them great joy in you as all this takes place. Make us like your son, Father. Make us like King Jesus. Make us least and make us nothing. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.